Welcome to Foresight Health Roundup, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Berta, news editor at Foresight Health. It is Thursday, October 13th. You heard me correctly. It's Thursday, October 13th. We're moving our weekly podcast to Thursdays so we can post it and send it to you separately from our weekly Friday newsletter. That way, you won't miss it in all the other original revolutionary healthcare content that we produce each week. It makes sense to me. What doesn't make sense is the dwindling access women have to safe and effective reproductive health care services and maternity care. And that's what we're going to talk about on today's show, courtesy of a big story in the Washington Post on how the growth of Catholic hospital systems is affecting access to reproductive services, and a new report out from the March of Dimes on maternity care deserts across the U.S. To explain the impact on women and babies are Dave Johnson, founder and CEO of Foresight Health, and Julie Merchantson, partner at Transformation Capital. But before we say hello to Dave and Julie, I wanted to say hello to the sponsor of the Foresight Health Roundup podcast, Infor. By connecting the business and mission sides of healthcare, institutions can enhance staff experience and simplify patient interactions. With data-driven insights and greater operational control, our sponsor, Infor, supports your company in making healthcare a calling again for your staff. Hi, Dave, and hi, Julie. How are you guys doing this morning? Dave? I'm still basking in the afterglow of last Sunday's Chicago Marathon. Terry and I are big fans. I've run that marathon seven times. The course actually crosses both ends of our streets, so we can easily see the leaders run by twice. Perfect weather last Sunday, over 40,000 runners, over a million spectators. Ruth Chepanadich missed the new women's world record by just 14 seconds. Emily Sisson demolished the U.S. women's record by over 40 seconds. They had a nice ceremony at the end of the race where the last four American record holders, including 65-year-old Joni Benoit Samuelson, who, by the way, just ran the London Marathon. There's hope for us all. Honored Emily for accomplishment. Quite a triumph for the human spirit and, and very uplifting. Now, that's great to see. Thanks, Dave. Julie, how are you? Well, I was going to say I'm great, but I will just comment that one of our colleagues, Shannon Ciotti, ran a 305 and said it was an amazing marathon. So, Dave, what a joy you have to be able to be there for that. Very cool. Now, before we talk about the Washington Post story and the March of Dimes report and a few other things, I wanted to ask you about your personal experience with the topic. Dave, do you know anyone who's been affected by the lack of access to reproductive services or maternity care, someone who had to switch providers or go to another state to get the care they needed? Well, I don't know anyone personally who has experienced these challenges. I am familiar with the torturous dynamics that afflict reproductive health in this country. One of our best friends is Dr. Deb Oyer, who is a Harvard-trained abortion doctor in Seattle. Uh, She's been a national leader in the Right to Abortion campaign and been targeted by extremist groups, even sometimes has had to wear bulletproof vests. So prior to Providence's acquisition of Swedish Medical Center in Seattle about 10 years ago, Deb ran a family medicine practice at Swedish that performed abortions, did a lot of other things too. To conform with the Catholic Church's religious and ethical directives, she had to move her practice off-site to a Planned Parenthood 
clinic. It was definitely disruptive, and she'd argue that the move reduced access to necessary maternity care services in Seattle. So what we're going to talk about today is is definitely a challenge. Yeah, interesting. Thanks, Dave. Julie, same thing. Anyone you know impacted by access issues? Fortunately, not someone directly by the access issues, but I've had my first experience with a friend's daughter who was on a wait list for a college and got into a school that was in a state that was not threatening to restrict abortion. And she was already you know, in a school that was in an abortion restricted state. So she chose to go to the school that she got into off the wait list. Really with that, I don't want to say that's the number one reason she went, but it was the number two reason, honestly. So this is interesting to watch young kids make choices over this. Right. Really uh, a material impact on her future starting at that age. In, uh, fascinating. Thanks, Julie. Julie, is she is she old enough to vote? The daughter old, old enough to vote? She is. And I will say one more thing. This is not about her fear of this issue for her. It was about her stance on the justice of the issue, which is great. Mm-hmm. I'm very curious to see what happens a month from now when Americans go to the polls for the first time after the Dobbs decision. I think it could be massive. Yeah. Kudos to the kids for being informed. Let's hope. I'm not sure I was that informed at that age, so good good for her. You were watching Three's Company. <laughs> that's <laughs> That's a, I can't argue with that. I, that's actually true. Anyways, like both of you, I live in a state and metropolitan area where there is an abundance of secular providers and access hasn't been an issue for anyone I know, but that clearly isn't the case for everyone. And that's what we're going to talk about on today's show. The Washington Post this week published a big story on how the growth of Catholic hospitals and health systems through mergers and acquisitions is restricting access to abortion, birth control, infertility treatments, and other reproductive services. Then separately, about a week earlier, HHS announced the awarding of more than $6 million in research grants for projects on family planning, teen pregnancy, emergency care for pregnant women, and access to birth control. Uh, Dave, what's your policy take on these two stories? You know, on one hand, the government is allowing mergers and acquisitions that limit reproductive services. On the other, the government is handing out money to expand reproductive services. Alternatively, what can the market do to at least preserve access? Let's address the government's action first. I applaud the Biden administration for trying to find ways to advance reproductive rights, but they really don't have much capacity to change the on the ground reality of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. The $6 million in grants are a proverbial drop in the bucket. They will fund constructive research and family planning, teenage pregnancy, and adolescent health, but any benefits produced by that research will come longer term, not immediately. The grants themselves range between $200,000 and $1.1 million. They will go to 11 organizations in seven states. Not sure why, but organizations in Maryland will receive five of the 11 grants. Maybe that's because that's where CMS's headquarters is. But let's get on to Catholic healthcare, which is the meat of our conversation today. As an investment banker in the late 1990s and 2000s, I assisted in creating many of the country's larger health systems. For historic reasons, many of these health systems have religious sponsors, and Catholic sponsored healthcare is huge. 
four of the nation's 10 largest health systems are Catholic. Most health system mergers were intradenominational, Catholic with Catholic, secular with secular. When mergers introduced religious sponsorship into a secular organization, there was always friction. Usually that friction centered in the medical staff, but sometimes it spread to the wider community. Being practical, Catholic and secular healthcare organizations that wanted to merge always tried to find and still do workarounds that enable reproductive services outlawed by the Catholic Church's religious and ethical directives. The, quote, hospital within a hospital is one example where reproductive services occur within facilities not previously owned by the Catholic Church or by a Catholic-sponsored organization. These types of examples create an absolute field day for lawyers expert in canon law. The ability to find workarounds, however, is dependent on local bishops. They have enormous power because they must approve any negotiated arrangements. More liberal bishops can facilitate agreement. More conservative bishops can take a harder line and make agreement more difficult. In 1998, an eternity ago, I presided over the quote-unquote divorce between Loyola University Medical Center and West Suburban Hospital here in Illinois. The institutions had merged two years earlier in 1996. By the time of the divorce, the two sides absolutely hated each other. We had to keep them in separate rooms during the closing. Disagreement about religious and ethical directives and their implementation was at the heart of the conflict. As I recall, the closing happened around the 4th of July, and I was sitting in a conference room between the warring parties and, for whatever reason, decided to write a parody of the Declaration of Independence, you know, quote, when in the course of treating the human spirit, that was Loyola's tagline at, at the time, it becomes necessary for one institution to sever the financial bonds that have connected them with one another and so on. So in many ways, the Washington Post story is simply old news that's taken on new currency in a post-Dobbs media environment. This doesn't diminish the story's importance, but it does provide added context. Big picture, I'm much less worried about the Catholic Church's stand on reproductive rights than the assault on those rights that's occurring in many state legislatures. And regarding your question about the market, Dave, the only thing I'm really saying, and it's important, are numerous attempts to provide transportation services for women that need reproductive services that states are outlawing to get to states like Illinois that allow them. Maybe you should dust off that uh, parody of the Declaration of Independence and publish that. <laughs> I'd have to go looking for it, but it's probably there. <laughs> oh, that's great. I, I think that would be very cool. Thanks, Dave. Julie, any questions for Dave? Yeah, that might be the first song I really like. <laughs> um, <laughs> ouch! Ouch! <laughs> <laughs> so, Dave, I will just say I read a stunning quote from Pope Francis, who, of course, strongly upholds the church's you know, teaching of opposition to abortion. He equated abortion to, and I quote, hiring a hitman to solve a problem. I mean, wow. Who writes for this guy? It's really, that's powerful. And as you likely know, the church prides itself in providing pastoral care for families in need, which is good to know because we're going to have a lot of families in need. It's hard to take this stuff seriously, but here's my question. Thinking of pastoral care, what should we demand the Catholic health systems do for these women and families in this new reality, 
because my guess is pastoral care isn't going to cut it. And if they're going to be denying or restricting access to care, um, what should they really be doing to make up for it? Mm, really, really good question. After Pope Paul VI, 1968 encyclical on human life that declared the use of birth control against the church's doctrine, then Secretary of Agriculture in the Nixon administration, Earl Butts, quipped, he no play the game, he no make of the rules. Pretty funny at the time. Butts unfortunately got fired for that remark, but the Catholic Church's dogma didn't change. And in many ways, it's hardened, as your quote from Pope Francis about hitmen demonstrates. Maybe Mario Puzo writes his speeches, <laughs> Julie. So what is a Catholic health system to do, given these doctrinaire restrictions? If they ask me, and of course they won't, uh, I'd encourage them to use their resources to invest abundantly in maternal and child care, lead the way on robust prenatal care and extended postnatal care, really try to make a difference in addressing our national deficiencies in these areas. If every human life is important, demonstrated by giving poor mothers and their babies the best shot at a healthy, happy, and productive life, walk the talk, particularly since Catholic healthcare denies many women the opportunity to control their own reproductive rights. That's the end of my homily for today. I, amen. I like it. Amen. Amen to that. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Now let's talk about this report from the March of Dimes and Maternity Care Deserts. The report said there were 1,119 maternity care deserts in the U.S. in 2020. A maternity care desert is a county in which there are no hospitals offering obstetrical services and no obstetricians. Not good if you're in labor. That's up from 1,085 maternity care deserts in 2016, according to a similar report released by the March of Dimes in 2018. More than 2.2 million women lived in those deserts in 2020. And despite the fact that there weren't any hospitals or obstetricians around, about 150,000 babies were born in those deserts. I guess you just can't stop some kids. All kidding aside, Julie, is this a policy story? Is this a market failure story? And what can the market do to extend access to maternity care in those deserts? Ugh, look, as many researchers are saying, the U.S. is in a maternal care crisis with the highest maternal mortality rate compared to any other country that we would want to compare ourselves to. And one that's increasing, you know, year over year. So, you know, this feels like massive market failure um, that's just getting worse. And of course, we also see in the data that those who live in these now called maternity care deserts, not a new term, but a term that's getting more visibility, are likely to be poor and likely to also have asthma or hypertension or have addiction issues. So again, these issues come back to healthcare very quickly. And analysis, of course, does show that many maternity care deserts appear to be found disproportionately in states that restrict abortion. And NPR analyzed the 2020 March of Dimes report and found that states with strict abortion bans have a higher percentage of residents living in maternity care deserts. So this is not a shock, but it's not really driven by that, of course. I love a quote I saw by Cindy Cullen, who's a professor at Ohio State University, who so eloquently said, quote, it seems ironic that you would both create a system where people were sometimes forced to remain pregnant and forced to give birth. And in those very same places, there would be a disinvestment in the healthcare facilities to care for people having babies. 
That's a good, strong, powerful quote. And that to me screams market failure. And just as Dave said of the Catholic healthcare system story, this is not new and was crescendoing long before Roe v. Wade was overturned, driven mostly by hospital closures. We had 19 rural hospitals closed in 2020, as we've talked about here, which is just a drop in the bucket of 180 closures since 2005. We've been experiencing massive physician shortages and now intense staffing shortages. So it's major. And the market can do a lot and is doing a lot, honestly. We're seeing several women's health maternity-focused solutions, many of which we discussed here in the spring and summer around the big news this summer. But you know, the ones I really think of for this maternity desert issue are solution companies like Quilted or Diana Health, Ula or Kaya the Care, who some of which, frankly, are in the midwifery business. Midwives are an enormous asset to a lot of these populations and used as a preference or exclusively by a lot of these populations culturally. So we're seeing solution companies built up around deploying better care models of midwifery. So there's a lot going on. And, you know, you mentioned uh, in your answer to me, Dave, Health Systems Banner Health is extending a telehealth program around maternity, Northwell standing at maternity center among, you know, many other systems. So all that said, you know, for me, the, the issue here is really around engagement and how do you most efficiently get the moms who need the help to these solutions or these systems and keep them coming back? Yeah, there's a lot that can be done. A lot of people are trying and we wish them well. Thanks, Julie. Dave, any questions for Julie? And Julie, what I really liked about what you're saying is we're using the term maternity desert, but it's really health deserts that we have all over the country. And they do tend to be more in in rural areas. And so when we see a maternity desert, we're also seeing a health desert and those problems compound one another. But here's my question for you. Of the nearly 4 million births each year in the U.S., roughly 150,000 occur within counties that the March of Dimes report categorizes as maternity deserts. While even one birth under such conditions is too many, the aggregate number was much smaller than I expected. I don't know if that was the case with you as well. My question is, is that number small enough, 150,000 cases, that a targeted program designed to improve maternity care for women giving birth in these counties could materially reduce the percentage of at-risk births? If so, how would you structure this type of program? And if not, what are the implacable obstacles that prevent constructive intervention? Yeah, so it's a great question. And I think this is exactly what this big movement around um, care transformation in rural health is all about. And um, obviously these are can be massive urban issues also, so it's not exclusively a rural health issue. But when you think about the Banners and Northwells and their programs uh, and whether they're standing up physical centers or they can deploy multimodal approaches, um, they can be a huge asset uh, as long as they focus on providing healthcare in these areas specifically, because Dave, as you just said, this gets wound into healthcare. Um, these solution companies I just talked about, some uh, work with health plans, some work with health systems. The reality is it comes back to engagement. And you know, if you're 
um, a, if you're a health plan in commercial or Medicare, this is probably not as big an issue for you, right? But if you're in the Medicaid business, and especially if you're getting into managed Medicaid, and you're working with one of these solutions, you can potentially do the most to really deploy these. And these are solutions that really try to engage that person because they know who they are. There's a much stronger cultural engagement and intentional engagement because of its commercial goals. Um, so I think there's a lot that health plans can do, but this has been the problem in particularly Medicaid for a long time. When you have the states well behind and not engaging either with specific health systems or with these kinds of innovative solutions, uh, it, it it makes it very hard to access populations that, for the most part, um, you know, are, are just looked at as numbers that roll off and on the dole. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Uh, more people need to realize that good care is good business. Thanks, Julie. I can honestly say that I'd be a single father of two right now rather than a married father of three if it wasn't for the great maternity care we received 19 years ago with our youngest. That was pretty dicey. Wow. So anything we can do to help women and children in this country is great. I mean, it's our future. Great discussion. Now let's briefly talk about other news that happened this week. Julie, what else happened this week that caught your eye? Well, this may be a regulatory nit, but CMS just floated an idea this week or really a plan for national provider directory to unify the fragmented parts of healthcare with an eye specifically on behavioral health. And there's a lot of businesses in the provider directory space, and it's unclear what CMS's plan is here, but this is yet another step towards ideas around centralization of information to streamline care. Got it. Thanks, Julie. David, any news this week that stopped you in your tracks? I'm focused on inflation and rising health insurance premiums as we move into benefit selection season. It's going to be fascinating to see how the dynamics between payers and providers, as well as between employers and employees, play out. It's certainly going to be interesting and could even get nasty. So stay tuned. Thanks, Dave. And thank you again, Julie. And thanks again to our sponsor, Infor. Infor connects the business and mission sides of healthcare, enhancing the staff experience and simplifying patient interactions with data-driven insights and greater operational control. That is all the time we have for today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed on today's show, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com. And don't forget to tell a friend about Foresight Health Roundup. Subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 minutes in healthcare. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Burdup for Foresight Health.